You were listening to History Man 1781, a project of ekbarns.com, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes and proclaim freedom reigns. Uh, on today's podcast, it's the third in a series of podcasts with Philip Wingard as we talk about uh, the early stoneware of America. Welcome, Philip. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Philip, we, we left off on the last podcast with, uh, with Chandler and and how he had taken over several um, potteries uh, down in Edgefield and uh, had established his name and, and was uh, putting out a great deal of, of stoneware. Um, so I'm going to turn it back over to you. Okay, thank you. Um, now that we've talked about Chandler and sort of established what he was able to do, I'm going to back up just a few years to about the year 1838 after he's married Margaret Durham and... Um, his uh, his father-in-law was working up in the uh, Kirksey's Crossroads area, which was in the northern part of Edgefield District. And Robert Mathis had also been involved up there. Well, Robert Mathis was at Pottersville at the time, and Mathis saw in Chandler something that I don't think any other potter saw, which was the Chandler had this ability to make pots that were different and significantly better and he said, well, look, what I want to do is I want to open up a pottery shop closer to the railroad. And I want you to come, Thomas Chandler, and I want John Durham to come, and I want, uh, I want uh, Amos Landrum to come, and even, even John Presley. All of you come down here. We're going to open up a shop down here. We're going to call it the Shaw's Creek Pottery, and we're going to sell pots. We're going to take them to the railroad, which is only about eight or ten miles from where I had the site picked out. And this was significant because by moving to that location, they were cutting off every other pottery. They were going to be closer than John Landrum. They were going to be closer than Lewis Miles. They were going to be closer than Pottersville. And they were going to be way closer than anybody up at uh, Kirksey's Crossroads. So by moving there in 1838, this was a bold move by Robert Mathis because up until this time, the Landrums and Colin Rhodes were the money guys, and they kind of dictated what was going to happen. Robert Mathis put his name on the map when he did this. and he, So they opened up a shop down on Shaw's Creek, and immediately Thomas began to define, redefine, and to make the decorations that he was capable of more uh, concise and have, have more thematic. And, and really make them clear. And so these early decorations that were produced there uh, really are some really fine de fine decorations. It didn't take him long. By 1839, he was, he was decorating pots with really wonderfully executed uh, daisies with sprigs, and uh, he could even write names on pots. He was doing really, really great work. So this made this made Colin Rhodes stand up and think, I think they're right, and I think I need to get involved. Colin Rhodes, during the year 1839, was the paid overseer of Pottersville. So at the end of his contract, in, in December of 39, he leaves and he goes down to Shaw's Creek and he says, guys, I want to buy into this venture and I want us to uh, really go big. We'll advertise in the newspaper, we're going to go big and we're going to go we're, we're going to really do this right. We're going to name the pottery Phoenix Factory. Okay, so 
that's what happens. And so for the next nine months, Phoenix Factory in the year 1840 takes over where uh, Shaw's Creek Pottery was, the same kiln and everything, the same clay source, different name. And they advertise that they make stoneware of the finest stoneware in America and that you can buy it at the depot at so many cents a gallon. And so they were now looking to sell to Charleston and they're looking to sell to Columbia and they're looking to sell to the urban towns this, these pots. So this venture moves along pretty well till about the fall of 1840. And, and of course what happens is that you know there are now eight men involved in this operation and they, they're not going to barter with uh, Colin Rhodes. He's going to have to pay them because that was, you know, that was the idea. They would make enough cash to have all be, made, be paid for potting. Thomas Chandler was the primary turner in all of this, but eventually Rhodes saw that the cash flow was not significant enough to cover the expenses, and so he puts the pottery up for sale. There was a big economic downturn in, in, in the early 1840s, and here again it was because cash would just dry up and there would be nothing circulating and so nobody had any cash so he couldn't find a buyer it took him three years i think two to three years to find a buyer for a stone where he finally sold it to his brother in the meantime it went from being this big venture to being a much more seasonal operation where Chandler worked there part-time and then he went back up to up to Kirk's crossroads and worked there some as well and he was still making a living because he had a talent where he could, he could decorate stoneware that nobody else had. And so through doing this, he was able to continue uh, making uh, wonderful pots, water coolers, and four-handle jars, and pitchers, and uh, all manner of just wonderfully, beautifully decorated pots. So toward the middle of 1840, he begins to see that uh, he has more of an opportunity at Kirksey's Crossroads than down at Charles Creek. Mainly because what has happened is, is that before Augusta was the big jumping off place and so everybody thought moving and selling and getting material going that direction. But by 1845, you have the great wagon road not far to the north of, of Kirksey's Crossroads and you're starting to see that you could sell to those folks who were going across the great wagon road that went down uh, basically I-85, I you know. Plus you had Highway 25 going up into the mountains of North Carolina. So you could sell in that direction and uh, there was success there. So Chandler, I think by 1845, he's working uh, probably in a partnership. Don't know who the partner was. Someone was backing him, but he was working, I believe, at a, at a site we now I now call it the Horsepin Creek site at Kirksey's Crossroads about a half a mile from uh, the uh, Martintown Road site where he had been working when he married Durham's daughter and so these were pretty close together he worked there for several years and then about the year 1847 a local minister John Trapp um, went into business with him and they made stuff he, he, he was the he was the financial backer and so for the first time Chandler gets to put his name on pots in association with his partner so you'll find pots that are stamped trap and Chandler these pots were made from about 4, 1847 to 1850 
Chandler here, you can see with these sign wares what he was doing and where he was, where he was going and what he was achieving. Most of these pots were made at the Marktown Road site and the Horse Bend Creek site I don't think was doing much. But it allowed Chandler to build up his capital to the point where he was able to open up for the first time in 1850 his own shop. His own shop, his name on the pots by itself. And this was these pots were stamped Chandler Maker. Chandler was uh, a master potter. He was uh, he was a man who didn't believe in owning property. I've never found him to have ever owned a piece of land anywhere. He he liked the idea that he could pick up and go whenever he wanted to go. He had sort of that vagabond uh, blood, I think. And he, as a young man, had traveled about, and I think he longed to travel and maybe go west. But tragedy, tragedy struck, unfortunate tragedy. In September of 1850, his oldest son, who was four years old at the time, drowned. And honestly, it appears he drowned in a clay pit that filled in with rainwater. And uh, there was an inquisition and nobody was found negligent but the thought of that his son would lay on the dining room table in his house for five days before the inquisition that picture to me would it would have been so so uh, horrendous a thought that and that's the way it was done back then you called a coroner's inquest and you set the date and then the body lay there until everybody could come and look at the body and they determined that there was no foul play so at that point, I think Chandler went into some sort of a shock. He continued to work, but in 1852, he had a probably some sort of an incident that caused him to transfer all of his property into his wife's name because he was afraid that someone might sue him and he didn't want to lose everything. So he did a deed of trust, putting everything in his wife's name. That's it. At that time, we learned that there were three slaves associated with the pottery. And they're called his property, but I really believe that they were probably slaves he inherited from the Durhams. And back then, the man owned the property, basically, unless somebody was specifically given to somebody. In this case, they were listed as his, and he was changing the ownership to his wife. Um, Interestingly enough, one of the slaves ended up going to Texas as a free black man in potting. And so his name was John Chandler. So again, I think Chandler, upon his death, had wished that these slaves would be set free. He came from the eastern shore where in, in, in the early 1800s was a huge revival movement. Um, it was called the Second Great Awakening. And in that movement, the slaves and the owners stood side by side in tents listening to preachers, and the preachers preached that you're never going to go to heaven if you own, if you had a, a man in bondage or a human in bondage. And so Chandler had that in his background, and in Accomack County, many, many, many slaves were freed. The Chandlers freed many slaves because of that. And I think Chandler had it in the back of his mind that he didn't want to own anybody. And although these were technically in his name, probably because of uh, they came to him via the estate, upon his death, he gave them their freedom.
so Chandler starts to spiral downward. Um, his wife is feeling the effects of it. She moves, she and he moves to basically the family to York County, South Carolina, right very close to the Mecklenburg County line. And this was really out of um, probably economic necessity because Chandler was probably, he was not potting on a consistent basis. However, I'm gonna say he, he most likely did have a large inventory. And so when she went to, she went to York County, she took with her, or he, he shipped up there with her probably thousands of gallons of pots that she could sell to create some income to live off of. Because when he died in 1854, in the summer of 1854, and his estate is, is held, his estate uh, um, sale is held, there's the mention of a, a, a sales book that dates back to January of, of 1853 that people had been buying pots on credit. And so that would tell me that he, he was, had established pottery sales up there and she was selling pots to live off of. At his estate sale, they sold over 5,000 gallons of stoneware. And yet, none of it was made in Mecklenburg County. It was all made in Edgefield. So you said you uh, you found some of that stoneware, or some of that stoneware has been discovered in as far as away as Texas. Uh, yes, Texas. Uh, uh, a piece recently turned up, came out of Ohio, Indiana. You know, Indiana. A lot of Quakers moved into Indiana, so you'll find a lot of a, a Southern decorative art that was made in South Carolina, North Carolina. You'll find it in Indiana. Is that right? Because the Quakers, when they went up there, they took pots with them right. to use. You'll find uh, you'll find it uh, in you'll find it up north even um, pots that have, have migrated up north. Um, Alabama. Why why Indiana? Alabama. Well, because the Quakers went to Indiana, Indiana and it, they went as a group. I mean, they just that was where just they, like a big migration. Yeah, they went from North Carolina and and they were driven away. Well, or they left because of the slavery issue. Okay. And so they went to Indiana because it was a free state. And, you know, it was far enough west that there were probably lands available, uh, but not so far west that, that it was in wild Indian territory, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that's something I've recently discovered as uh, talking to a number of people in Indiana because um, I wondered where their stoneware um, traditions came from, and a lot of it came from North Carolina. Now, I have yet to find a South Carolina potter up there, but I would not doubt that there were some who went there and mm -hmm. were potters that were slaves who were potters that went up there and made pots because Indiana was just above the, above the Ohio River, and the Ohio River was the line between a free and a slave states. So this, is, uh, you know, this was the tragedy of Thomas Chandler. He went into a spiral into some sort of uh, serious depression, and upon his death, he had um, had to give, you know, had, his estate was sold off. But the, the, the estate kind of leaves behind um, a little bit of information that lets us know who Thomas Chandler was. They sold an instrument. It was an accordion. So it was likely that Thomas Chandler's musical ability was on the accordion. The first lot that they sold in this sale was a book. And it was the complete works of Shakespeare. Now, I've been to many, many estate sales. And I've seen the state papers from many, many estates over the years. 
Never have I ever seen anybody sell a Shakespeare book as the first lot. The next lot was the history of the United States. The third lot was the history of the world. These were books that he cherished. Mm -hmm. I mean, these were things that he cherished. The next lot was a lot of books. So, you know, the rest of his library. I can imagine in all of that was probably his book on designs. As any artist would have had a design book where he would sketch out what he was trying to do before he did it on the pot. You know, that's probably critical to why his pots and his decorations are so significant is that he sketched it out ahead of time and he took it from some designs that he remembered perhaps in uh, the swag and tassels right out of the American fancy book. Um, that's a, and that's one of his signature decorations is swag and tassel. The daisy and the, 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 the bell flowers, all of that right out of design from the American fancy period. So I'm sure he had a sketchbook where he sketched ideas. He had a sense of humor. He was very much a, uh, he loved tobacco. He grew tobacco and there were a number of lots that he sold were plugs of tobacco where he'd cured tobacco. Mm -hmm. And one of the forms that he made was what we call a snuff jar. He made snuff jars and um, they are typically cylindrical in shape until they get up to the top then they bevel in to a fairly medium-sized opening that one could tie off or put a lid on. And um, so he grew tobacco and sold it as part of what he did as a as a as probably something he learned in uh, Eastern Shore, and so um, from this we learned that Thomas Chandler was uh, highly productive, wonderful potter, and whose life was affected by tragedy as many lives are, and so at the end uh, the legacy we have were the pots he left behind, which you know quite honestly were so well made they have survived to this day in in, in a lot of them. Is, in, in the same condition as when they were made. I think we, we take for granted the pots uh, nowadays in this day of Walmart and plastics and those sort of things. These were uh, these were the storage containers that they used. Uh, yeah, they didn't throw them away unless they got broken into pieces. That's right, and they were a lot more yeah. sturdy than, than some of the everyday more fragile pieces of pottery that were porous and did not hold water. Right. Uh, so... Uh, I wonder how do they measure up to the the pots of the Egyptians and the, the, the clay pots back then? You know, when we talk about Jesus turning water into wine, he was the wine was actually stored in vats. Uh, how do these pots measure up to to that type of engineering? These would be superior. All of these would be superior because the uh, the ability you kind of look at it like the printing press. That's right. You know, the early presses they got they were able to print and they were able to make copies but when you when you made a print you know you had to re-ink it every time and eventually we got to where we we did better than that well with pottery with stoneware when we were able to get up to a firing temperature of 2500 degrees once we were able to fire pots at that temperature even without glazes that stoneware would have a certain amount of glaze on it um when you use wood, as and that's what all these early potters were doing, even before Edgefield, before Pottersville, and when they made stoneware, the wood itself, this fly ash, would mix with the moisture in the kiln, the, the humidity in the kiln, and will oftentimes put a, a very thin glaze on the pots. 
without any glaze at all. So there was already a certain amount of that as a possibility. And then, of course, in the salt glazing process, you'd wait until the pot was at a very high temperature when the kiln was at its highest temperature. Then you would dump a bucket of salt in or five buckets or whatever you needed. And the salt vaporizes into hydrochloric acid and, uh, and the silica melts that's in the salt as part of the salt equation. And that creates a glaze from salt glazing. Uh, that type of that type of uh, firing process did create a, a, a caustic uh, exhaust out of the chimney, so it was not as safe as alkaline glazing. Um, but the at the end of the day, alkaline glazing was better than salt glazing. Uh, I think basically it's just more durable. I see. It's just more durable in the long run. I see. Well, it certainly opened up the West, where people were able to to pack more. Uh, food stores and that sort of thing on their journey west. Uh, and I think you were talking to that effect that you uh, you found uh, you found evidence where they went into Alabama. That you found the pots in Alabama and then on further out towards Texas and stuff. So, well, if you can just imagine, I mean, if you decided today that you're going to go to Texas, well, by wagon traveling to Texas might take a year, might take more than a year. I mean, it just depends, but. You know, every day you have to eat. How are you going to eat every day? There's not a McDonald's in Georgia you can stop at. They don't have wagon drive throughs anywhere. You know, you're going to go through days where you're not going to even see any people. You're going to have days where you're not going to be in towns. You're going to have to provide for yourself. You're going to have to provide your own food, and you're going to have to find your own fresh water. And these pots helped with that. They helped get through those times when there was nothing else. You know, they could make salt pork. Um, they could do uh, they could do dried beans and put them in the in these big jars and cover them up. Um, I recently Googled how long is a dried bean good because I was curious, and the answer came back indefinite. So a dried bean is good for quite a long time, 10 years, 20 years, I don't know, a long time. So a uh, dried bean is a very 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 good source of food it's got protein fiber lots of things it's good for you so uh, they learned how to do that and grains are the same way grains if they were kept dry they will be fine and all of this was part of this process that helped people to be to migrate to move to go somewhere else and try another another life i see well, listen, thank you so much for spending time with me. This, is, uh, this has been very uh, good for me to, to see a different, different side of history and to, and to feel the passion that you have in it. Tell us how people can reach you. Well, the best way to reach me probably would be through email. Um, my email address would be philip1lwingard, W-I-N-G-A-R-D, at yahoo.com. I also do antique shows throughout the year. I'm at the Madison Antique Show in late February. I'm at the Columbia Bottle Show in mid-February. I oftentimes do the Catawba Valley Pottery Show in Hickory, North Carolina in late March. I also do a show in Camden, South Carolina in May, and I do a show in Cashiers, North Carolina in late July. And in the fall, I'll do the um, antique show at Liberty, North Carolina, the last weekend in September. So I hope to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.